Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Yes, this is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. I am your host, Brian Urban, and today we are joined by two legends of health innovation across our ecosystem. Today on our show, we are joined by Dr. Karen Murphy, the Executive Vice President, Chief Innovation Officer, and by the way, Founding Director of the Steele Institute for Health Innovation at Geisinger. Karen, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is, this is going to be fun. And alongside you, Karen, we have President of Care Journey and former U.S. White House Chief Technology Officer for multiple presidential terms, Anish Chopra. Anish, it's great to see you again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, but mostly to have me join my friend Karen. It's going to be a good discussion. Indeed it will. And we've both gotten to know each other a little bit here and there before our show, which always makes it a lot of fun because we can really expand our dialogue here. So uh, with every episode, we like to have our audience get to know our guests at the personal level and what took you into your leadership role. So Karen, let's let's start with you. I, I get some interesting facts, but I want you to take me back before these things happen. So you, uh, you have been ranked what modern healthcare has noted uh, uh, top women leaders in 2023. And then also in 2021, going back a little bit, uh, clinical executive top influencers. So I mean, this doesn't just happen. So take me back. How did you get to this place being chief innovation officer for one of the most creative healthcare and health plan organizations in the U.S.? Well, thanks very much for uh, your kind words. Um, my journey has been... Um, one that I characterize as I've been very fortunate, very lucky, um, which has enabled me to get to the place that I'm at today. So started my career out as a registered nurse. I worked 10 years as an intensive care unit nurse and then went into uh, hospital administration, health system administration. So I was president and CEO of a community hospital in Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, then I took a magnificent turn to public service, which Anish and I share, and um, very rewarding experience um, at CMMI, where I led the State Innovation Models Initiative, and then um, had the tremendous opportunity to be uh, appointed by Governor Wolf as his Secretary of Health in his first term. Um, just all of that foundation has brought me to um, six years at Geisinger and uh, had the tremendous honor of innovating uh, at Geisinger. That's amazing because your, your humble beginnings as frontline in healthcare gave you probably a very interesting perspective. And then uh, everything that you've been involved in project level, strategic level, it, it really shows that your healthcare background, your healthcare orientation to serving lives. So very, very cool. And Anish, let's get to some Anish Chopra now. So uh, you, you lead Care Journey as a president, but back to your uh, U.S. White House 
chief technology officer days. Uh, you yourself, you know, were ranked a uh, most influential uh, person by uh, healthcare means by modern healthcare. So very high regard. And here you are now uh, leading a lot of analytic work for payers and providers. Uh, take us through your early beginnings and how you've become now president of a very dynamic health technology organization. Well, like uh, Karen, I've, life is about serendipity and uh, luck. I was an analyst at Morgan Stanley fresh out of college, but my I was on the healthcare team, but my colleagues were on the tech team and they took a little company public called Netscape. And I was like, what is that? The stock went through the roof. And uh, I was convinced from that moment on that the internet would have a big impact on society. Now I'm a public servant at heart, more so than a sort of a capitalist at heart. Of course, I am a, a respectful of our market system, but I care deeply about scale and change. So I committed myself to thinking about how the internet would be a force for good and health and energy and education sectors. Like Karen, I was lucky enough to be in state government. I was Virginia's secretary of technology under Governor Tim Kaine. And, you know, state government is, uh, Karen may have uh, kind of alluded to this, but you get your hands on the ground because you get to see the impact uh, in a way that maybe when you're in the White House or at, you're at CMS, you kind of have a bit more of a broader uh, view. So I had the pleasure of having that kind of frontline perspective before I, I moved into the Obama administration. And while my role was broad, meaning it was in health, energy, transportation, the environment, uh, it was something where both Governor Kane and President Obama said, I love all of my children, but healthcare is one of those that I want to do a bit more in. So I ended up becoming a bit more focused on healthcare. And of course, I had a career in healthcare at the advisory board for a decade. So I was aware of this sort of unique public private partnership nature of our healthcare system. So you just sort of fast forward, you know, kind of you think about the last 20 years, the internet economy has been so impactful. We've moved to digitization. Karen, as you know, has won the AI Innovation Challenge at CMS. So her team has been right up there, top ranked in applying these new technologies to solve meaningful problems. And we're at a similar inflection point, I think, in the uh, advent of generative AI. And so the same feels that I had about the Netscape IPO and the internet, I have the same set of feelings about what this capability will do to improve productivity, accelerate the move to value-based care, and hopefully give people a better healthcare system uh, that we want uh, for our loved ones uh, in our private lives. And so that's been my life. I live at the intersection of public and private, the release of public data for private use and for broad public use. That's what I do at Care Journey uh, on helping to figure out who the best performing physicians, networks, facilities are. And that's been a blast for the last uh, half a dozen years. I love, Anish, how you described not only your experiences, but this this big S curve of the milestones and the next big peak that you're seeing is generative AI in healthcare and, and so many cool things that will help alleviate administrative burden, uh, help access to care, improve quality of care, its affordability, et cetera. So we're definitely gonna get into that side of it to see your perspective going forward. It's going to be really exciting. And I, I love that you both have the public and private intersections and a lot of the different innovations at ground level. So, Karen, uh, thinking about that, you've seen a lot of development from the Steele Institute of Health Innovation the last 
oh my goodness, you know, just even two years, let alone the last five years. Uh, my Code, Neighborly, 65 Ford, Fresh Food Pharmacies, I love that one. And Free to Be Mom, what we were just talking about before the show here. It's just so amazing. And this portfolio is growing of these health innovations at the community level. How do you see this evolving over the next three plus years? Do you think there's going to be more of these programs or are they going to become deeper and even more impactful in, in their current application? So that's a great question. And I agree with Anish. Um, we are at a pivotal point with not only generative AI, but I would say all digital technology um, that will enable true transformation. So um, I think the next three years are going to be all about digital data. And as Anish, Anish said, uh, generative AI, I think it is the most, this job is the hardest job I ever had in my life, by the way, um, because to do, to affect meaningful change that you're really solving problems and transforming uh, and being really transformational, um, it, it's hard to have a meaningful impact. It's easy to talk about innovation, shiny new nickels, um, but it's much harder to really get something done that is meaningful. And I think um, now we're at a new inflection point where data digital um, will really enable us to be far reaching. Um, as you talk about community, Geisinger is a, a statewide Medicaid plan now. Um, so we clearly can't, uh, we have clinical assets in 21 counties, but very hard to reach those other counties the members in um, outside of our clinical asset uh, areas. So we can digitally, I mean, we can leveraging the tools that we have and um, really excited, uh, really excited about the future. And I think the other point about generative AI, uh, healthcare post pandemic, um, I think we thought that when the virus calmed down, everything would be okay. And I think for the next decade, we're experiencing challenges in healthcare due to the pandemic um, that really we have to leverage uh, all the tools in our toolbox. And as Anish said, generative AI, in order to allow us to be more efficient and also support um, our clinical teams is going to be critically important um, based on not only workforce shortages, but also um, our financial models. So um, I think the next three years is, is going to be uh, focused in, uh, in those areas. Really. And I love where you're going with that, Karen, uh, using digital means to close divides, improve access. And uh, that makes me immediately think of the National Wireless Initiative and Startup America, a niche that you, you led many moons ago. But I want to get into tech and humanity because that's something you let off with in our earlier part of our conversation. And you've touched so many projects. Would you say some of those examples, the National Wireless Initiative, Startup America, that that was really a, a foundation for building health equity, advancing programs on top of, or that has maybe fueled uh, some government-based programs to address social determinants of health barriers? I mean, take me back to those early days. Do you think yeah. that's... Well, uh, 
I think the pandemic and the Biden administration helped us focus on the health equity issue. I feel guilty that we were not as I was personally not as aware or focused on disaggregating performance by these measures to even know how bad the gaps were. So let me acknowledge this is not like a straight line of like policy. making. This is uh, a little bit of a leap. But to set the stage, when the president came in and said, I wanted to create this role of the U.S. CTO, the objective was to really advance the notion of what he saw in his campaign, which is that it was a bottom-up change. He's a bottom-up change guy. And so the, the internet allowed individuals to take control over their own little communities, organize and make a difference. So, so much of Washington is top-down and it's sort of counterintuitive to think, how do you take advantage of the new scale of emerging technologies like the internet to kind of give you that, that bottom-up approach? So to give you a little bit of a window, we, our objective was to create a framework. And the framework, which by the way, turns out to be a bipartisan framework, uh, the Trump administration embraced this framework. So I'm just grateful for it. The framework was the role of government historically has been investments in infrastructure. And in this sort of internet-based era, now it's no longer roadways, railways, and runways, but it's broadband, it's uh, cloud computing, it's human capital like R&D. So you think about what does an investment in infrastructure look like in the modern era? It's the same role of government, but on a new set of things to focus on or an expanded set of things. Then you need to have rules of the road. And in the internet economy, the challenge of course, is you over-regulate something that's emerging. You might get like Europeans do, you get it wrong and you sort of reduce the capacity to benefit from the innovation. You kind of stifle it because it's so complicated. It becomes almost impossible to get an enterprise off the ground. So we just tried to do embrace a more public private partnership approach. And that had a lot more to do with industry standards, protections of security rules, thinking about privacy frameworks, but really allowing the private sector to work within that construct to reach consensus, to be more agile. Last but not least, the president had a few areas where he said, I wanna have an all hands on deck approach. I call on the country to solve, in this case, what Karen was doing on the state innovation model is a natural and obvious extension of the all hands on deck approach because it was like, look, Washington's going to have some ideas. We came up with MSSP ACOs and things that came from the top, but that the states might want to have their own perspective, local governments too, and private sector stakeholders. So how do we create that all hands on deck approach? My view was open data and standards would allow for a lot of organizations to experiment, but not with apples, pears, bananas, and grapes, but in a way that we could test, validate, and scale what works. So moving forward, the social determinants of health story did have an Obama administration experiment. I had nothing to do with it. That was Darshak Sangabi, a colleague of, of Karen's at the Innovation Center. Darshak said, I wanted to do screening uh, for purposes of social needs. And if someone had two or more social needs, that they should be given a case manager. And so the experiment called Accountable Health Communities went forward. Now, in that evaluation, they didn't show an economic return on investment, but we did show people were getting their issues addressed. They were screened and addressing these social needs, but there was a lot of friction. It wasn't integrated into the EHR. It was sort of a separate IT system. Fast forward, we now have interoperability standards. We've worked on this program called Sync for Social Needs in the last uh, 12 months, all voluntary, no money. And we got Epic, Cerner, Meditech, and a bunch of other health systems to say, Geisinger, of course, at the table, to make sure that we get a common language for how to communicate 
this patient, I believe, is food insecure. So now we have a common uh, uh, data standard for this, and we hope that that'll be a part of the infrastructure going into 2024 when hospitals have to do universal screening and we can kind of begin uh, with kind of that scalability in mind. So it's not like a one-off decision at each individual site that doesn't really give us the answer to the question, what's the best way to surface and address social needs? That last part of your explanation blows me away. And it's actually something I'm not aware of. So we definitely want to dive in deeper to that, perhaps in the rest of our conversation here. So Anish, it's it's now you're you're coming to and we kind of call uh, this uh, health technology driving health equity forward arc in which you're getting these very large organizations to either contribute or uh, I would say donate their resources, technology, time to being able to put a model together that can be refined and, and future applied for the better. And it's, it seems like it's a universal model. It's not siloed up, which is, which is, I commend you on that. That is amazing. That takes moving mountains. And, uh, no, it it took the government regulating and mandating something in the future, but there wasn't a technical path doing that. (laughs) You, You can't deny the fact that this wasn't all goodwill for the help of the world. This was the organization saying, CMS just mandated a 1124 universal screening requirement for hospitals. The Joint Commission, the NCQA, the NQF, all are like eyes on this. And we didn't really have the brain power of the, you know, kind of the quality, I call them the Troika, to kind of ex- communicate what the tech has to do. So we didn't, we just took advantage of the moment that there was a timeline, there was a quality Troika demand signal to aggregate. And then there, willing participants like the Geisinger team and the EHR systems to say, look, we're going to have to do this anyway. Let's try to do this in a way that doesn't make it be custom manual entry. And that would allow for Karen to do her fresh food pharmacy scale so that you could say, you know what, for folks that have this criteria, this is a good program and it has an economic return. So you're not scaling through charity, you're scaling through ROI on the foundation of the plan. So I mean, Karen, you're welcome to comment, but I think the fresh food pharmacy demonstrated in its world an ROI and sort of having a data foundation may make it easier to scale. But I'll, I'll defer to you, Karen, since I haven't gotten the latest on your thinking on it. I think that's, uh, I think that's a fair um, statement. I think the other piece um, that I would say that is so necessary and, and the value of, of screening is really to um, evaluate the work, Anish, when you say, you know, we need to have data, very difficult, um, very difficult because of the complexities of, you know, when you're talking about social determinant work, you're talking about community benefit organizations, you're talking about um, really the lifeblood of um, the infrastructure that addresses social determinants of health. So. Um, I think this screening is going to be so tremendous to to guide us, not only to fresh food pharmacy programs, but also um, those partnerships that, you know, how do we connect um, using data with our community benefit organizations, our Medicaid, uh, our Medicaid partnership with the state. Um, I, I think the I think we will advance the work uh, in a much more comprehensive way. I love where you both went with this. This is a real world example. There are two fresh food pharmacy locations 
in Pennsylvania, uh, hosted and supported by Geisinger. And uh, Anish, it's, it's interesting that you um, talked about that there's the timeline to meet because there's going to be an expectation of screening for social needs. I, I, I think now it's amazing that CMS has become so tight with NCQA to adopt a lot of, of their measures and their suggestions with the social needs screening in particular. And then how do we apply that data? Not just gathering it, but how do we apply it? And the steps forward you've taken uh, in, in all the partnerships you've developed for putting a model, model together is quite amazing. So I love the fresh food pharmacy. I've actually been to one in, in passing uh, in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So um, it's amazing to see it alive and scaling, not just at like a cohort level, but at a personal level too. So it's, uh, I think it's magnificent and it just shows the real world application. And Anish, you said something before that you said there's a the federal level and then the, the state level of how different state agencies and bodies and organizations, anchor systems want to have their impact to, to advancing health equity and addressing social determinants of health barriers. And I'm thinking about uh, the, the CMS announcement and launch of the uh, 1115 waivers with provisions related to SDOH programs and pilots. That's a mouthful right there. All eyes on Calame, baby. Yes. <laughs> and it's amazing because I think there's been, we're talking nine plus figures, maybe 10 figure mark that we're into and, and CMS giving a, a monetary amount of support to programs, but also there's a follow through part of that. So I wanted to get both of your perspectives on section 1115 here. I'm not a policy person by background. But I wanted to understand, you know, is this the next big leap that's going to help adoption of models from state level to private health plans, to Medicare Advantage-focused health plans? Uh, I'm, I'm curious of your perspectives. Karen, if we could start with you. For sure. Uh, this is her job, man. You got to put yeah. her on the spot first. <laughs> I want to get your take on Section 1115 and the provisions you've seen being executed and, and there's I think there's probably a dozen still pending but mm -hmm. great progress what what's your take on this I think um, you know 1115 waivers are a heavy lift for a state they um, they're obviously Medicaid is both a state and a federal program I think the fact that we have 1115 waivers that really encourages pr particularly progressive states, um, that are really thinking of being transformative. Um, I think for SDOH to be included in the 1115s will advance the work. I think the second, um, the second value of the 1115s is that it really moves the thinking into value-based care. So, you know, to be successful at really advancing work in the social determinants, it really has to be grounded in value-based care. So not the fee-for-service, because if you're straight on a fee-for-service, you're not, it's it's very difficult to, to achieve good work in SDOH. So I think the 1115s are, the fact that they've included um, 1115s, uh, including social determinants has been great. So a lot of states have already, over the past 10 years, leveraged 1115s and have done some remarkable work. Um, so very interesting to see how this is going to progress. I think the, the part that states have challenges 
uh, Anish, and maybe you could comment on this too. The part that states have challenges is really getting down to the providers and and working with the providers because a lot of policy, um, you know, we we are lucky enough and fortunate enough to have healthcare clinical background, but that's not always the case in terms of um, in terms of partnerships. So. I think the more we do this, the more we can really get the transformation on the ground because states will learn how to engage with um, providers. And that was a big part of SIM, right? The State Innovation Models Initiative is really your pot, your, your denominator is your state population. And that includes all your health systems. So um, I, I think it just will be tremendous in uh, accelerating uh, the work and I hope that you know we'd love to see more states take advantage of uh, eleven fifteen waivers that now include the social determinants piece. Yeah, and and Brian, I think the spillover benefits of eleven fifteen hinge on the following: how transferable are the workflow investments and the efforts needed to be successful in the model? If it's siloed, if it's a noun. I did a thing funded and subsidized by the 1115 waiver at a very non-competitive price. And that when the money goes away or there's some shift, then uh, the whole thing goes poof. That's not a recipe for success. If it's a seed investment to change the workflows, to change the standards, the data sharing, the kind of operating model, and it can do so at scale across all lines of business, then it becomes the beginning of a new way where it's the role of government to be the sort of innovative tip of the spear to test and then validate and then scale what works. Landing that proverbial triple axle has been very difficult. So to give you a little bit of history, one of the first assignments in the uh, Obama years was to land the meaningful use definition when we were putting out the $30 billion subsidy for electronic health record adoption. And Brian, you can kind of analogize what the current 1115 looks like, nouns and verbs. The political pressure was to get the money out yesterday because it was an economic recovery package. The policy prescription was to use the dollars as capital down payment towards value-based care. So we kind of had the following leaps of faith. We would front load the cash in the early years of the program, but then call that the stick phase, sorry, the carrot phase. And then it would transition into a stick phase over time. The hope of the stick phase was that the stick would look like a carrot because if you move to value-based care, you would want to do these things, not be forced to do them. Like for example, recording blood pressure if you're a specialist, not a cardiologist, that may not be how your clinic operates, but keeping track of blood pressure because you're the most recent clinician visit for someone who happens to also have hypertension, even if they haven't come to see you because of their hypertension, that feedback loop would get someone like the primary care doctor to know, oh, I need to adjust the meds or the cardiologist because there's something happening here secondarily to the reason I was going into the orthopedic surgeon for back pain or whatever. So you would want that to be not a drag, like a stick. You have to record the blood pressure. That's annoying. You'd want that to be, of course, I would do that because it's going to make the whole 
healthcare system better and the avoided admission tied to that condition getting exacerbated will fund you know a greater pot of of money to the to the network so this idea of 1115 going back to meaningful use the injection of dollars it's got a trip the triple axle is it's got to move towards a demand signal where we want to move to value anyway we need people like karen at geisinger to experiment with fresh food to say look this intervention works for this group of people, but not for that group of people. The government's not going to micromanage that or know that level of detail, but it wants to create the learning lab where this sort of experiment will take place. So that is not, we're, we're watching this movie in real time. Uh, we're excited that CalAIM was the first out of the gate with this sort of SDOH infusion. I am worried as a technical matter, it was implemented just at the cusp of the last crappy data infrastructure system. So the actual operations of it today look from the outside a little bit like Frankenstein technically. The hope is now that the Cures Act is live and we've got modern and, and, and regulated data standards, maybe the second and third state, maybe if New York goes next, they could kind of build on the California model, but on this more kind of scalable stack. So it could be easy for everyone to download and use the kind of uh, workflows that are needed to thrive in these uh, 1115 waiver states. I love the analogy path that you just gave there, because I think a lot of our listeners, uh, are, are their background is tech. Their background is not being able to understand what is being done from top-down approach. And the tip of the spear in terms of the innovation analogy you gave for the, for the government now trying to inject not just the monies, but the, the, the hopeful not just a point in time of a study or a program, but then that seed money that you were describing, it actually is taken up as a new program or a new process, a new change to a clinical workflow or a licensed clinical uh, outreach uh, care management scenario as well. And that is, that is the hope. I love that analogy. That makes it so, so darn simple for not only myself, but a lot of listeners that aren't familiar with how this has been rolled out and in the context you provided in terms of investment, very, very helpful as well. And it leads me down a path of thinking uh, data. Okay, so we, we see, uh, and, and I, I love California and New York, high volume Medicaid uh, geographies and the data that is at their disposal, uh, not just census, but uh, eligibility files, things that are of public nature I'm thinking about looking at that whole person and I'm thinking about socioeconomic data. And we've talked about what, what the industry is now dubbing as SDOH data in, in a, a lot of regards is taking that data, not just into a workflow, but at the industry level into EHRs. Do you think that's the next big leap? I, I, we don't have the hard timelines and regulation of saying, Hey, you have to put third party verifiable data in an EHR and we don't have that yet, but do you think that's the next big thing? Are there conversations that are happening around that in the industry, Anish? I want to hear Karen go first because she's on the front lines and I want to react to how she thinks about this because <laughs> I would reflect uh, a little bit of the demand signal from folks who have to manage the purchasing and integration of data against the investments and workflow and improvement. But Karen, I, I would be very keen to hear your thoughts on, on this and I'll be happy to react. So I think the, you know, when we talk about taking multiple data sets into 
uh, generate meaningful data. Um, I think this is where generative, generative AI is going to be tremendously helpful um, because we are going to be able to we're, we are going to be able to do data aggregation and then test on that data. So it's not so much I, I it's not so much I don't think that we're worried about ingesting socioeconomic data into an EHR, but it is let's identify a way that we can ingest data from multiple sources, including the, the EHR, and then aggregating that in a way that produces meaningful guidance for us. Um, that, and I think uh, generative AI will be able to, will be able to advance our work. I mean, we ingest multiple uh, data sources now, but it's clunky. Um, to be quite honest, it's, it's pretty clunky to deal with. So um, very excited about and we in, in order to do this SDOH work we have to we have to have this data. Brian, I think the uh, building up from where Karen is going, the highest and best use of generative AI, in my view, may be to equip everybody with their superpower data analyst. And so what Karen is basically saying, and I'm gonna infer from that, we've increased the supply of data from a liquidity standpoint, but we haven't necessarily equated that to the maximus, the maximal use of said data. I can't imagine how many doctors have complained to me. Yes, I can access the, the medical records from a doctor down the street and I could read their 75 page PDF to like prepare for my visit. But are you kidding me? I'm not reading a 75 page PDF, um, a scanned in fax or some other kind of odd, odd dynamic. So to the extent that we think of this as both the supply of data about the individual growing, that's a given, it is growing, whether it includes third-party SDOH data or just external claims history or external EHR data from the market or survey data that may come in uh, in a more uh, computable format. The challenge is the use. And so uh, I think it wasn't a secret or it wasn't a surprise that when Microsoft and Epic announced their partnership, of course, the sizzle is we're going to reduce the friction in the doctor's inbox that gets a lot of the headline or to summarize this sort of medical records, um, uh, you know, kind of in the uh, uh, at the at the point of care, so to speak, to reduce the, the friction I just alluded to. But the real magic, in my view, was the announcement that Epic and Microsoft were going to train LLMs to ask questions of the data to help inform the kind of thinking that, that Karen has to do every day in her innovation capacity at Geisinger, which is what subset of the population has the highest need for an intervention that we either have tested or are ready to scale? And so there's no formula. There's no, you know, no one goes to Karen and says, you know, give free groceries to 80% of people in this zip code. That's too blunt an instrument. She'll overspend on folks that may not need it. And she'll underspend on those who might that are not in that zip code. So we need a little bit more precision science and learning and the combination of the supply of data growing and the analytics capacity at scale an LLM and my, you know, co-pilot uh, data analyst 
that feels like the the moment we're in mm. to answer your question yes always more data <laughs> that is not the solution that is a step on the journey yeah i love how you said that i immediately thought of an ai superhero when you were first describing uh what what you're seeing and where we're at now and i think uh it's really interesting you both bring this up it comes down to the provider level how would you sow a meaningful social health view of a patient or a member that isn't a laundry list of, hey, they just had uh, this criminal activity, they just had a spouse pass away, they just had their debt to income ratio change drastically, they're losing assets. No one could you know, even begin to understand how do you address those challenges that are definitely impacting their health and, and even their, their trust in you know, receiving certain types of health care. So it's 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 not just the data, um, but it is the appropriateness uh, of the view of that, and then the application of well, what do you do from here? Do you prescribe uh, food? Do you prescribe a transportation service? Do you just, uh, prescribe in-home care? So uh, it's we're getting there, and I think the generative AI generation that we're going into will help clean that up and give more precision. So I love I love that you took you took that. A uh, very basic question, and you took us you took us into the future. So, thank you both for for that question. And it makes me think of some things that are outside technology. So, Karen, uh, your Geisinger at Home program has has been around for multiple years. It's been very successful in reaching a lot of hard to reach populations in rural Pennsylvania and even the hinterlands uh, in Pennsylvania as well. So, I, I'm curious. It feels like a very much an offshoot of being able to see and potentially address social determinants in the home, having clinicians in the home. Can you help me understand the adoption of your patients with this in-home care model? Uh, has, it, has it grown successfully because of the trust uh, as currency with your patients or, or word of mouth or just simply the great clinicians you have going in homes? How, how is this transformed over the last several years? So we have really refined the referral process to say and analyzed what patients belong in Geisinger at home, what patients benefit the most from Geisinger at home. And I think when we, they're patients with multiple chronic conditions, um, what we are always trying to do is to maintain, maintain our, our members and our patients in, in the home. Um, it is purely value-based care in that we are doing the right thing at the right time um, with the right patients. So we have identified who benefits the most in terms of uh, experience. I always start with experience because if we're not doing something that doesn't um, is not positively viewed by a member or patient, then that's not the right thing to do, right? So. Um, always experience, but also the other indicators such as decreasing emergency department use uh, and decreasing repeated admissions. You know, I, I never heard anybody say in my whole career, I'd like to be in the hospital. So, um, you know, patients and members just love the fact that they can have a high level of care in, in the home. And I think that uh, the team has done a great job at identifying um, where we can be most impactful uh, with that program. And, and you're right, we call it windshield time. 
when you're in rural communities, it you have to really work to get to those uh, members and patients. So it, it has really been a, a remarkable, uh, remarkable program and very successful. I love to hear that. And that's the part of the human condition that a lot of our technologies today cannot be able to empathize with or address. So it's definitely a blend of things and a merging of things as, as well. And we've covered so much in our conversation, humanity and innovation, definitely fueling health equity in the U.S. right now. I wanted to ask you both as kind of some closing remarks, uh, what would you both say to other health innovation, healthcare leaders across the U.S. Uh, in terms of investing in different programs, whether it's data exchange, uh, different innovations, programs, technologies, to be able to better address social determinants of health. Uh, uh, Karen, can, can we start with you? What would your message be across the landscape for those who are hesitant or don't have this uh, as a team maybe, uh, or a culture built in their current you know, their, their current organization. So my first recommendation would be um, to focus on what's measurable and what's impactful. And it's not, I would rather, much rather be deep in one or two programs and produce results than be a mile long and an inch deep and just say, we have a list of these programs but they're really not at scale, or there are some programs, uh, I mean, that have not demonstrated clearly that they impact uh, clinical outcomes. So um, my recommendation would be so start with selecting what we know. We know is food is not only medicine, food is health. So that's a, there's a national movement. There's plenty of information out there on how you could do it. Um, so I would say start with that. I would say if you have limited resources, um, don't go after the programs that are easier to implement, but don't produce uh, don't produce a, a direct uh, positive outcome. I uh, I come at this from a scale perspective. The tech lens out as much as the program level in, and I would say the following practical questions. Right now we have the screening muscles getting worked out. I ask my doctor friends, if you were to screen someone for food insecurity before you go to the list of the programs, mile wide, inch deep, however um, Karen outlined them, before you get to the directory, which of those are paid for by the patient's plan? How many doctors know there's 12 meals vouchers offered by the health plan that this particular patient sees. There's no standard for that, Brian. There's no 270, 271 EDI transaction that says get social needs benefits that are triggered by a eligibility criteria. So to me, scalability would mean let's try to solve for if people are funding benefits, let's educate the practitioners on, on, on what's available. And then to Karen's point about the food as medicine, the evidence is overwhelming. It is, but think of all the other interventions and within food as medicine, a lot of permutations, there's a lot of learning needed to be done. What's the learning database on which this can be understood? 
if everybody is siloing their little experiments and there's no common method by which we can pool and learn, it'll take that 17 year from bench to bedside, you know, time scale. And we don't have the luxury of that. So you may have seen at the White House Hunger Conference a year ago under President Biden, the uh, Rockefeller Foundation and um, the uh, American Heart Association jointly announced a quarter of a billion dollar investment to kind of put together a data learning lab on all the food as medicine experiments. And my hope is that we can kind of double down and on steroids, such a kind of public private asset because we need it. So we, you know, we need a screen. We covered that. We need to have some kind of um, eligibility funded benefit knowledge. And then when it's used, we want a copy of the fact that it was used to be part of a learning lab to say, oh, patients of this sort with these doctors and these clinical support systems did far better than the others. What did they do? Oh, well, they integrated the nutritionist into workflow and they figured out how to do that. I mean, whatever the answer is, I would rather we learn together faster than kind of continue on the path of micro learnings because our system is heavily fragmented and it's not naturally designed for kind of collaboration of this sort. I love where you both took this. Find something that's measurable, go deep on it, and then be able to share your learnings and make sure that you're connecting the provider into that journey. I, I think if we start to go down that path, everyone's going to jump in. So I hope everyone listening to this found that not only inspirational, but really a how-to path. So those are some deep considerations to take into your organization. So at this point, I, I got to thank you both. Uh, I, I love your brains and your hearts from everything that you've been a part of and what you're impacting in your life today and in your career. So Karen Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. Anish Chopra, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And for more exciting insights and excerpts, please visit us at finthrive.com. Mm -hmm.